but they are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. I got baptized at uh, Lake Minnetonka. Uh, I hit a couple backflips. Playoffs? Don't talk about playoffs. You kidding me? Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. My swag was having no swag. Hello, everyone, and welcome into another installment here of the Minnesota Sports Podcast for the 29th of November. How are you guys doing? I'm CJ Baumgartner, and we're going to break down all that's going on in Minnesota sports. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving weekend, and obviously not a lot of people in Minnesota sports were taking turkey naps over the weekend because, man, was a lot going on. Man, do we have a lot of good news, and also the Vikings game to talk about. You know, when you look at the Wild winning a bunch, the Wolves are winning a bunch, the Gophers took home the axe. Byron Buxton is staying with the Twins on a big extension. That's a win-win for both sides. And then the Vikings just had to go and ruin it. So why don't we get that part out of the way? Why don't we get the bad news part out of the way with the Minnesota Vikings? Also, one thing to note for the Gophers, too, not only did they get a win in keeping the axe, they all or in getting the axe back in Minnesota, they are also dumping Mike Sanford Jr., the offensive coordinator, they're kicking him to the curb, and that's what we talked about on this program all season was the Gophers needing to get rid of him. So now let's dive right in here and talk with about the Minnesota Vikings, and we do a little segment here each week called Stock Up, Stock Down on the Minnesota Sports Podcast, and we go over uh, the Minnesota Vikings last game, and we just talk with a couple ups and a couple downs that uh, stood out to me over the last week. And Stock Up, we'll start with the positivity here, Stock Up. Christian Derrissaw, the Vikings' first-round pick, he was a left tackle, the rookie out of Virginia Tech. He didn't have a great start to the season because he was injured. And then once all those injuries went away, once he got fully healthy, man, has he been playing a great, great season so far. And I'm pulling up his PFF page right now, but Christian Derrissaw has had a great season. He has passed both the and – I, and I talk about PFF because, again, it's a great way to look at some of these offensive linemen. but also need to remember, too, he's passing the eye test as well. He went up against one of the top rushers in – top edge rushers in football in Nick Bosa. He went up against both Bosa brothers, and he held his own. Now, yeah, he got beat a couple times against Nick Bosa, but even the best left tackles are still going to get beat by him. But it was the interesting way of that – in that game, Christian Derrissaw held Nick Bosa to, according to PFF, his worst grade of the season. So Nick Bosa had one of his worst games of the season against the Vikings because of Christian Derrissaw. And that's a great thing to build on in year one. That's a great thing to build on when you were starting behind the eight ball and you're kind of kind of having to pick it up on the fly. Christian Derrissaw has been an added boost for this offensive line and has been a big help and helps the Vikings establish that they have two corner linemen and that they just have to work from the inside, which is an issue, and we'll talk about that in a second. But staying on the positives of this Vikings offensive line, you have Brian O'Neill, who is going to be here for a while under contract. Now you also have Christian Derrissaw, who's going to be here for the next four-plus years, and he, at, at least the next three years, hopefully a fourth after this, with a fifth-year option that he has, and then you know, hopefully he does well enough to earn an extension. Either way, he's been a great draft pick. He was one that you know, was a need at the time when the Vikings drafted. It was a solid pick on paper, but as Rick Spielman drafting offensive linemen always goes, you have to wait and see and you have to let it develop. 
when he's picked on the high end outside of Matt Khalil. He has done pretty well picking offensive linemen. And even Matt Khalil wasn't a complete bust. He just faded out at the end. He still provided you some, not a lot, but he provided you some production. But Christian Derrissaw has provided a great amount of production. He's on the lower end of the first-round picks in terms of pay scale. And just all of that, I think that if you want to talk about Rick Spielman potentially saving his job, looking at hitting on Justin Jefferson last year, hitting on Christian Derrissaw this year, these are things that you can do to kind of salvage and make your pitch to ownership that you still uh, deserve to be in the job you're in. But... Again, the stock up is Christian Derrissaw. Great week this week, building up more great weeks. He's going to be playing the Lions where he got his first taste of NFL action. So we'll see how he does this week. But I'm liking Christian Derrissaw. He's been quiet. He's just, we've, I mean, we've been talking about him in these moments here on the podcast. But outside of that, when you're watching the game, you're not worried about Christian Derrissaw. And for the Vikings throwing a rookie left tackle in this dumpster fire that is the Vikings offensive line outside of Brian O'Neill. It's been pretty darn good. All right, let's look at stock down now. And the big man himself, that is Kirk Cousins. So Kirky has been having a great season to this point statistically, 23 touchdowns to three interceptions coming into the week. He threw an interception, got a couple touchdowns, but he still didn't play well this week. And I'm going to show you how people kind of play. See, whether we've learned, whether in the realm of sports or whether in the realm of really anything outside of sports, you can basically make numbers and statistics say really whatever you want if you disguise the context that they're in. So Kirk Cousins uh, fans, Kirk Cousins Twitter is a weird place, man. Now, I'm not, I don't consider myself anti-Kirk. I think Kirk is a good quarterback who can do a lot of good things. I just think that he needs way too more. I think he needs way too many things to be right that NFL teams just can't guarantee to always be in the right place. But Kirk Cousins puts up good enough stat lines, and you can look at the box scores, and then you can see some of the highlight plays of Kirk Cousins, and you can use it to convince yourself that he you can use it to convince yourself that he can be the leader of your franchise. But it's also those same snapshots that anti-Kirk Cousins fans use are the same snap, and then you take the inverse, and it's those same snapshots that the anti-Kirk Cousins Twitter uses as well. I say Twitter because that's where I see a lot of these arguments hashing out. But at the same time, um, but at the same time with the Kirk Cousins thing, I, I think the biggest thing, so, so I'm going to give you a stat line. He was 20 of 32 for 238 yards, two touchdowns, and an interception. Now on, on paper, you know, you don't like the interception, but two touchdowns over 200 yards, you know, it did pretty well all that, it's, it just, when you watch the game in person, he had some good throws, but as the game went on, you could sense things tighten up. You could sense this was a big playoff game. This wasn't trying to come back against Carolina, who I'm sorry is not a good team. This isn't coming back against Detroit, who we know isn't a good team. This is, this isn't playing the Green Bay Packers at home. This is a game that has some implications. This is a game where you were expected to win, or at least was a 50-50 toss-up. You were playing without pressure against Green Bay. Because win or lose, everybody was expecting you to lose. And you could sense as the game went on that Kirk Cousins started to tighten up. The gears start moving. Kirk Cousins, I'm not saying you, in a way, the anxiousness of Kirk Cousins builds up. And you can tell some of this with people. I've seen a lot of high school sports. And you can just tell some kids are, like, they just tense up. And there's nothing wrong with them. There's nothing bad. It's just some people just aren't made for that. And I'm sorry. So when I look at that, 
Kirk Cousins just doesn't look like a franchise quarterback to me. That doesn't mean he's a bad quarterback. That doesn't mean he sucks. That doesn't mean that he's not worthy of being a starting quarterback. I just don't know if I want him to be the face of my franchise if I'm a head coach. And that one interception he did throw, I know last week we were talking about Kirk Cousins can throw more interceptions. The caveat of that was if he's being aggressive. And Kirk Cousins wasn't aggressive. He just was not. The one interception he threw was throwing – somebody captioned this best of – it's an interception that you throw in NCAA 14. It's one of those ones where you forget the linebacker is sitting right there as you try and dump it off to the mid-level. And, I mean, Kirk Cousins threw in the double coverage, and it didn't work out. And it gave the 49er offense a short field, oh, by the way, which they punched in for a score. So, yeah, an interception going deep to Jefferson is okay because it's an arm punt. But throwing throwing to a, not a check down, but throwing, it still wasn't past the first down marker. And it gets intercepted. And they return it like that. In that situation, that's not an interception where you can excuse him from. And it just wasn't a great week for Kirk Cousins. And this, by the way, this, by the way, isn't even talking about Kirk Cousins lining up under his own center. And I know everybody talks about uh, everybody. The the defense of Kirk Cousins is well. Everybody was confused. Yes, but who was the one in the huddle calling the play? Who was the one doing that? And even in all the confusion, he lined up under the guard. And it wasn't a trick play because Alexander Madison was like, "Hey, man, you you can't be lined up under there." And the guard is just sitting there going. I feel very uncomfortable right now as Kirk Cousins goes under center. And not used to that feeling. And just with all of that, I mean, it's just a mind, it's just a blunder of epic proportions. It is a gaffe that you do not expect your starting quarterback to have. And I know last year Tom Brady had the, everybody brings up the fourth down thing with Tom Brady looking at the sideline and putting four fingers up in the air like he didn't realize it was fourth down. Yeah, guess what? Tom Brady made that in an October game against the Bears on Thursday Night Football. Not in late November, in a, in a game against the 49ers that has huge playoff implications, and you do that. I'm sorry, that doesn't fly. It was fourth and goal. You look discombobulated from the start, and I, I got nothing. Now, I'm not saying it's all on Kirk Cousins. Sure, is there some coaching issues in that? Sure. Should Mike Zimmer have called the timeout? Also, sure, there's a bunch of things that you can look at in that situation and nitpick, but ultimately that falls on the quarterback in that situation. You lined up under the guard. I'm sorry. How many – Tom Brady never lined up under a guard, and I am no Tom Brady defender when he screws up. You, you, I, lining, I don't see how you can look at this and go it, – it's not – and this is where the Kirk Cousins sort of that perplexes me. It's not that they can – it's that they have never they never have an ability to ever criticize Kirk Cousins, and I think it's because they feel like that they're defensed into this box because the because there's a lot of anti-Kirk people, so they will trash Kirk Cousins, and then they feel they need to defend him at every cost because they feel like if they give any ground that they're losing the argument. But I'm sorry, guys, Kirk Cousins failed in that situation, and his stock is down this week. He had his worst game of the season, worst game of the season. And whether this was coaching or whether it's not, Zimmer and Cousins keep shifting blame to each other. But they stopped throwing to Justin Jefferson and Adam Thielen in the second half. And wouldn't you know it, the Vikings fell down big in the second half. So I just, I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear any of this. 
about it's not all it's not Kirk's fault, it's not this, it's not that. Yeah, it's never Kirk's fault to some of you people. And by the way, Kirk Cousins deserves a lot of credit for getting the Vikings to the position they are this season with some of those comeback wins. But this is the old Kirk Cousins that showed up, and this is the Kirk Cousins that makes me reserved about giving him an extension. This is the Kirk Cousins of why he's in the positions he is in, because he just mind bleeps himself in these situations and gets himself worked up and just never works out. But it just shows you the ceiling of Kirk Cousins and shows you that no matter how good he plays at stretches, he's always capable of doing this and more likely of doing it on a higher level. So that's my stock down. That was a long stock down. But Kirk Cousins, man. Kirk Cousins. Stock up. Vikings playoff hopes. And, well, let's just see. The Vikings had a big loss. They go under 500 as they're going to now heading into December. That's probably leaves them like they're probably like behind one or two teams to get into the playoffs and all this kind of stuff. And, oh, my goodness. Now, obviously, there's a little bit of little bit of wordplay here, but have you seen the NFC's playoff standings? My goodness, they are atrocious. They are atrocious. They are, in the words of Stephen A. Smith, they are blasphemous, Max Kellerman, how bad they are. There is, and, and as I'm waiting for these stats to load here and to uh, give us a look at this playoff picture, it is, it is not great. So you have the division leaders. You have Green Bay, obviously. You have the division leaders in Arizona, and you have the division leaders in Tampa Bay. And also you have the division leaders in the east of Dallas. But outside of them, the Rams are the only team behind them with a winning record. So they have the five seed basically locked up. The six and seven seed is a bunch of is a bunch of those toddlers that just keep eating glue and uh, teething onto things that they shouldn't be teething on and falling over onto themselves. And that is the final two spots in the NFC playoff race. Uh, the San Francisco 49ers now have the sixth spot, and the Minnesota Vikings are coming behind. They, uh, the Minnesota Vikings coming in behind, they are locked up into the end. The NFL page isn't really loading for me, but they are in the Minnesota Vikings. It would be in the playoff race if the season ended today, but that doesn't really do them any good if they're going to end up having to play like the Packers at Lambeau Field right away. But the Panthers lost. The Saints lost again. The Falcons somehow won, so they're five and six. The Saints have, my goodness, they have slid off. Trevor Simeon, man. Trevor Simeon, you're getting benched for the Mormon Missile in Taysom Hill. Uh, but the looking at this, the Eagles, they, they blew a game against New York uh, that they should have won, so the Eagles now go to five and seven. The Vikings are sitting there at five and six. They have a chance here. A lot of teams playing late buys, by the way. I, I don't know if I've ever heard teams playing having buys this late into the season. I don't know if it's because of the new rule, because of the new uh, schedule with the extra game. But so the Rams and the 49ers lock up the five and six spots. That seven spot, or at least, are locked in those positions for now. The and by the way, the 49ers now have a big tiebreaker over the Vikings. So looking now. The Vikings competition, really, the Bears technically aren't out of it, but you should beat them, especially if they're starting Andy Dalton. Um, the Falcons, I'm not really worried about them either. Uh, the Saints, unless Taysom Hill somehow balls out, I think extended amounts of Taysom Hill get him exposed. The Panthers, Cam Newton is broken. The Eagles, I don't really trust the Eagles either, but they have a pretty soft schedule. I think if you're the Vikings, I think the team you're looking out for the most has to be the Eagles in terms of that seventh playoff spot. But here's the thing. I don't want the Vikings to back into the playoffs. 
Even though I think the Vikings, I think the Vikings still make the playoffs. I think of all this crap that happened, the poor coaching, the poor execution by some of the players, the everything that happened, the there were some bad officiating calls too. But in everything, in everything, uh, they're still going to make the playoffs. But doesn't matter if they back in on a seven seed and get destroyed right away. If they become the Chicago Bears of last season, oh cool, you made the playoffs at eight and eight. All right, you're going to get just completely shellacked against New Orleans and prove that seven teams is probably too much to put into the playoffs, at least if you want to watch good football games. So that is how it shakes out with the stock up. That is the Vikings' playoff hopes. It is really bad. The NFC standings make me want to puke when you get past the Rams. Oh, my goodness. If the Vikings somehow don't make the playoffs, by the way, Zimmer is obviously fired, and Spielman should be fired at that point too. Kirk Cousins should basically be given – dead man walk-in papers, lame duck papers, and they figure out to either trade him or draft a quarterback or something. Um, but, man, if they don't miss the playoffs, they need to burn everything to the ground. Uh, lastly, we're going to stock down. This is Ole Udo. He's been getting worse and worse every week, has the offensive guard, and not only according to the PFF, but also according to the eye test as well. He's a great. He's been going down every week. He was in a grade in about the 60s. Earlier in the season, the high 60s, it's now gone down to the 58. It's gone down a whole 10 points. He's basically at a D-plus right now in terms of production, according to Pro Football Focus. Of course, he is tied for second in the league with 12 penalties, despite playing being top 10 in offensive snaps played. Ole Udo, he's started every single game for the Vikings, but he has not been good as of late. He's been getting worse and worse and worse and worse, not only with the penalties, but also he's a guy who clearly gets outmatched. And this is something that when I, I talk about high school sports references earlier, uh, when I was in high school, I had a junior varsity coach, football coach, and he would make the case of, you know, we need, we want to play as many kids as we can, but there's just some kids we can't play because it's going to get somebody hurt. We can't put a kid in at offensive line who's not going to do well at offensive line and have a guy run right past him because it's going to get some other kid hurt. That's a little bit extreme. Obviously, Ole Udo is a professional. I'm not saying he's that bad, but it's kind of on the same level. Ole Udo has been inept at this position, and the Vikings have been so inept at getting interior offensive linemen that they literally have nobody to go with. They have nobody to defer to with Ole Udo. Wyatt Davis isn't ready. He's been healthy scratches all season. The Vikings aren't going to turn to him. They have nowhere to go with the guard position past Ole Udo because they've done such a terrible job of scouting the interior offensive linemen. And that's been the thing. Interior offensive linemen has been bad. And, again, with the whole, if you put guys in who shouldn't be there all the time or at least putting them in as much as you are, you're going to get somebody hurt. And you know who you got hurt? Your star running back. Dalvin Cook gets hurt on the play. He separates his shoulder, dislocates his shoulder. He is going to be, He was already playing hurt, which is why he hadn't really been uh, playing like his old self. But he got hurt. And he got hurt because Ole Udo missed a block. And he came right to Dalvin in the backfield, did the 49ers defensive lineman. And it was all because of Ole Udo messing up on that play. Got beat right from the snap. Now it happens from time to time. And if it happened to Christian Derrissaw, if it happened to Brian O'Neill, heck, if it even happened to Ezra Cleveland, you go, that sucks. He got beat on that play. That's not good, and somebody got hurt. But when it's somebody like Ole Udo, who you go, this guy has been a liability for you all season. You continue to put him out there, and then this bad result happens. This wasn't a 
weird, bad luck kind of play. This was a, this was a, you shouldn't be surprised when this result happens because you're putting people in positions that they should not be in. And I don't think Ole Udo is a bad player, but keep in mind he was a tackle coming out of college. Spielman, of course, wanted to kick him to the inside of the offensive line because once again, Rick Spielman tries to get cute on the offensive line. And again, he's done good with the picks of O'Neal and of Derisaw, but that interior offensive line he's never been able to figure out. He did it with Elf Line. He did it with Ezra Cleveland. He did it with all these guys whipping him around, moving him position to position, and acting like it's all going to be okay. It doesn't work. All right. Oli Udo. Is, Oli Udo isn't the main problem. Oli Udo is a root symptom. Oli Udo is a symptom of the root cause of the issue, which is Rick Spielman. And I talked about Derisaw might be enough to save Spielman's job, but then you look at the inverse and you look at guys like Oli Udo and the guys that Spielman puts in there, yeah, uh, that's enough to fire a guy, considering his track record with that. All right, well, that's been our stock up, stock down with the Minnesota Vikings this week. I want to talk a lot more about the Vikings in this game, and we're going to talk more about it throughout the week. But I just a couple more notes. They stopped targeting Justin Jefferson and Adam Thielen again. And I like that Clint Kubiak had a couple more plays dialed up. There were a couple creative plays. I like the flea flicker. That worked. I like the wide receiver pass from Jefferson that was complete for 24 yards. I liked that. But I wondered why they stopped targeting Justin Jefferson and Adam Thielen late in the game. I'm sure the 49ers had some kind of defensive adjustment for it, but you still need to find ways. That's a chess match. You need to find ways to counter their adjustments and find ways to get Justin Jefferson and Adam Thielen the ball because when you do, they win. When you did that last week against Green Bay, you won. You didn't do it in the second half last week, and you're shocked that you only got two touchdowns, and one of them, by the way, coming from a kickoff return from Kenny Nwangwu, who's also doing really great, by the way. Kenny Nwangwu has been doing so well on the kickoff return. He had a couple other, he had another big kickoff return right before halftime that the Vikings didn't do anything with. But Kenny Nwangwu, especially with Dalvin Cook now hurt, expect him to see a few more offensive snaps. He's been playing very well. Very great to see for somebody who got hurt early in the season. But speaking of blowing that half, uh, that great field position right before halftime, uh, Mike Zimmer's defense in two minutes under two minutes, has been one of the worst in NFL history. I don't have the stat in front of me, but it is, points allowed in under two minutes, the Vikings are the worst in NFL history. It has not been good. I can't remember if that's on points average or if that's on total amount of points given up, but it's been bad, and Mike Zimmer's two-minute defense has not been good. And that was one of the things of Mike Zimmer's defense in the past was them always being able to get a big stop in key moments to keep their team in the game, and they haven't been able to. So, the again, watch with all this. The Vikings are a mess right now. But and this has been the whole thing this season. We always knew that they've been a mess the more that this season has gone on. By the way, only NFL, only team in NFL history to have led by a touchdown in all, or at least they're the only team this season, to have led by at least seven points or more in every single one of their games, they have a five and six record. That's coaching. I'm sorry, that's coaching. That is coaching. And this whole thing looks like it's on the course to be getting blown up. But as I say that, watch the Minnesota Vikings back into the playoffs in the seventh seed. They face a team like Green Bay on the road. They win. They end up going on to play another team. They lose. But it's a big enough win in the first round for ownership to give Spielman, Zimmer, and Cousins extensions again, like in 2019. And then we reset the clock, and we basically are having this conversation again this time next year and the year after that. So... Again, 
I'm not in favor. This is why I'm not in favor of large playoff teams sometimes or large amounts of because it, it tricks teams into thinking that they're competitive because they make the playoffs. In the NBA, a team makes the playoffs as like the sixth seed gets bounced in the first round. They're probably still firing a head coach. And that's the culture because there's too many teams that get into the playoffs. So just making the playoffs isn't necessarily a win for your franchise. And then the NFL, the playoffs have been so small for a long time, now adding this extra team, that making the playoffs and firing a head coach is still an unprecedented move. It's still something that a lot of people go, wow, they made the playoffs. Why are they firing the head coach? And the Vikings, there's a case to be made. They should have did that after 2019, but they are going to be doing that in 2020 unless they somehow win their first-round matchup, and then all of a sudden things get a little bit interesting. Watch them do it, and we reset this clock all over again. All right. Now, we talked a lot about the Vikings, but there's a lot to talk about still, so let's keep this train moving here. We are talking about the Minnesota Gophers. The Axe is back in Minneapolis. This was the first time that the Gophers have beaten the Badgers in Minneapolis since 2004, I believe. They, of course, won the Axe a couple of years ago, but that was in Camp Randall. Now the Axe is staying back in Minneapolis for another year. That's a big win. And how disappointing the Gophers' season has been, it was a big win. To, it was a big salvaging win to get the Axe, get to eight wins on the year. You take yourself out of the Detroit or the pin, the Detroit Bowl or the Pinstripe Bowl, and you play yourselves into a bowl game in Las Vegas, a bowl game in Nashville, potentially, potentially like a Citrus Bowl kind of situation. There's still a pathway for the Gophers to get a good bowl game in this, get a high-profile one, and it's a season-saving one. Obviously, nobody was getting nobody in a big position of power is really going to get fired over this, but it was just a nice way to end the season. They still should have done a lot more. We'll talk about that later this week. But it was a big win. The Gophers were aggressive in situations, and it got them the win. They were aggressive in uh, passing down once they got into the red zone, and the defense just played a heck of a game. And Wisconsin is like Minnesota. They just were better coached in certain late-game situations. They're a good team with a good defense and good players around them, but they just don't have a quarterback. And imagine Minnesota or Iowa or Wisconsin or really any Big Ten West team with a decent quarterback, and they might actually have a shot of beating a team from the Big Ten East, which, by the way, congratulations, Michigan is now representing the Big Ten East this year instead of Ohio State. I believe since they switched over the format, it has basically been Michigan or Michigan, this is the first time they've been in under the new East-West format, which has been around for seven years now. Uh, Big Ten East is 7-0 in these games. Ohio State's won six, I believe, and Michigan State won the other one. So good. good here's your chance, Iowa, to maybe do something. Or, uh, or I don't know. You're, you're probably not going to. Anyway, uh, so big, big win for the Gophers there. Tanner Morgan played efficient, and the offense just kept rolling. Big win to beat. Uh, the Badgers in your home field and the season with some positive momentum and get to eight wins, which is huge. And now you potentially play yourself into a better bowl game. More importantly, Mike Sanford Jr., offensive coordinator for the Gophers, is parting ways, according to reports. He is not going to be back. And we talked on this program that Mike Sanford Jr., the offensive coordinator for the Gophers, he went to Utah State. He was at BYU. And his last two stops where he, the, uh, he took over good offenses, and they got significantly worse while he was there. And he took over a Minnesota offense in 2019 that was pretty dynamic. Granted, they lost uh, 
They lost uh, Tyler Johnson. And they also, by the way, didn't really have Rashad Bateman because of the whole COVID year. It was a mess. And, and I'm going to draw Mulligan on the COVID year. That one is just weird. But this year, uh, so I was going to give a Mulligan for Sanford Jr. on 2020. 2021 proved that he's not a good offensive coordinator. And now the Gophers are going to be fishing for a new one. Not really sure who is the leading candidate right now. Again, Kirk Sriracha was the offensive coordinator for P.J. Fleck uh, since he came over in 2016, uh, in 2017. But Sriracha left after the 2019 season. He was the offensive coordinator at Penn State. And now he needed P.J. Fleck replaced him with Sanford Jr. And now he's got to look for his third offensive coordinator uh, since being the Gophers head coach. And we'll see where he can find. We'll see if somebody gets promoted within, like with Joe Rossi on the defensive coordinator side of the ball. We'll see if they go with an outside candidate. Uh, so it'll be an interesting one to see. And it'll be interesting because Tanner Morgan is coming back. And we'll talk more about that throughout the week. Um, and as bowl season, that bowl matchup gets announced. But Tanner Morgan is coming back as well. Muhammad Ibrahim is coming back, which is also another great sign. And looks to be that Chris Ottman Bell is going to be back as well. So keeping the band back together, got some veteran options for whoever steps into this offensive coordinator spot. And if you can just salvage Tanner Morgan even a little bit, the Gophers should have a good chance with another week's schedule in playing in the Big Ten West. Should be able to get back into some form of competitiveness for next season. Uh, we'll see what happens. Also, Falele the giant offensive tackle for the Gophers. He's going to the Senior Bowl. Congrats to him. All right. Now, let's talk about some Byron Buxton here. Uh, he is a very, very rich man. So the Byron Buxton contract for the Minnesota Vikings, or the Minnesota Twins, excuse me, is a pretty darn good one. And I think it's a win-win for both sides. I, I really think that this Byron Buxton contract is a win for both sides. So I'm going to explain a little bit the deal. Uh, this is according now to reports from the, uh, let's go with ESPN here, uh, on this reporting. And with it, uh, again, this is according to ESPN, Jeff Passan and uh, Ken Rosenthal and all the usual suspects were the ones breaking the story, came out, and because it's Jeff Passan's ESPN Plus. All right. Uh, so, with this article, uh, this is according to David Schoenfield of ESPN, and talking about the language of the Buxton contract, of course, this is according to Jeff Passan now, he says, uh, with uh, the agreement on a long-term nine-figure contract extension, Buxton's deal, as Ken Rosenthal said, is for seven years and $100 million, and was reported as well, includes a full no-trade clause, and there's MVP bonuses for Buxton that are significant. So if Byron Buxton gets first place in MVP voting, he gets $8 million. If he gets second place in MVP voting, he gets $7 million. Third place in MVP voting gets $6 million, fourth, $5 million, fifth, fourth, and, and so forth, and so on and so forth. And Buxton also gets deals based on plate appearances as well. And he gets about an average, it's like $9 million this season, goes up to $15 million for the rest of the deal. But... Seven years, $100 million, incentive-based. And here's the thing. If Buxton does hit all those incentives and it ends up being a $200 million contract or whatever, but the Twins get an MVP caliber player in Byron Buxton, the, the Twins will happily, Derek Falvey and Thad Levine will happily cash that check. And again, the biggest thing with Byron Buxton, we know the talent is there. It's can he stay healthy. And remember, for the first 24 games of 2021, Buxton was the best player 
on the planet. He was the best baseball player on the on the planet. He could hit for average. He hit for home runs. He hit doubles, stole some bases, played a great center field. And keep in mind, he, he slashed 370, 408, 772, with nine home runs, 10 doubles, and five stolen bases in the first month of the season. He led all hitters in slugging percentage and only trailed Mike Trout in OPS. Is that good? Yeah, that's pretty dang good. Byron Buxton is a great player. Of course, he had the health concerns, and that was the thing. Did you want to pay a guy like Buxton, who was injury-prone? Did you want to pay him $20 million? Now, I was of the opinion that I still would have cashed the check to keep him here, but Byron Buxton's camp was self-aware, and Byron Buxton wanted to be here. Buxton was loyal through this process. Negotiations broke down at several times, but he maintained he wanted to be here. Ownership said he wanted to be here. Everything came together. Buxton is going to stay in Minnesota. This was a win that the front office of Derek Falvey and Thad Levine really needed. After a week of bad press they were getting after hearing Buxton negotiations falling short, the clock is ticking when it comes to Major League Baseball moves. I mean, just there have been a flurry of moves, and we'll talk about that for baseball later this week as well. But And the Twins were out on a bunch of them, and they couldn't even re-sign Buxton. Everybody was call, not calling for the heads, but everybody was really starting to doubt the competency of Falvey and Levine, and they come away with not only an extension for Byron Buxton, but a team-friendly extension for Byron Buxton, and one that can still get the center fielder a bunch of money. It's a win. It is a win for both sides. This is a classic win-win scenario. They played really well, and uh, Buxton played really well to earn this extension. Of course, missed some time as well. Um, but even if you get Byron Buxton for 100 games, that is just phenomenal. The Twins' record with Byron Buxton is the Twins are a winning team with Byron Buxton in the lineup. When Byron Buxton is in the lineup, the Twins have a winning record. When Byron Buxton is out of the lineup, the Twins are a losing baseball team. They need Byron Buxton in this lineup. He's a game changer. He's finally starting to put it all together. And if you just get one season, Byron Buxton is never going to play 162 games. Byron Buxton is probably never going to play 150. Heck, probably not even 140. But if you can get Byron Buxton for 100 to 130 games a season, even half of the years of this contract, that is a win. Keep in mind that the Twins paid Miguel Sano $11 million last season, and for a good chunk of the year, he was riding the bench, or at least was a platoon player. So this, in terms of modern Major League Baseball numbers, this isn't a lot of money. And if he hits all those bonuses and the Twins pay him more, that means that they got a lot of production, and they will gladly write those checks. This is a win-win. It's a win-win for Buxton. He gets the long-term extension. He gets the money he deserves. It's a win for the Twins. They lock up a star player, especially after seeing Barrios and seeing all those other guys sign contracts. It shows that the Twins are capable of keeping some of their own players in-house. Byron Buxton is now the face of the Minnesota Twins franchise. And it leads me to think about the last face of the franchise in Joe Maurer and how the Twins, and more importantly, Twins fans, treated him once he signed that contract. Keep in mind, Buxton is going to still continue being the player he is. There is still a good chance that he only plays half of next season. There's a good chance he misses two months with a broken hand, with a wrist injury, with an ankle injury, with an oblique injury, whatever. And we need to be okay that he's making more money now. The thing with Joe Maurer was the Twins fans were always upset that even though he, I mean, he came off an MVP year, of course, and the Twins made the playoffs, and Maurer took a lot of the blame for the Twins' struggles. And Maurer did struggle himself once he got that contract. But here's the thing. Joe Maurer still earned that contract. And Joe Maurer might have been overpaid towards the end. 
But he was the player he always was. And just because he gets the massive contract doesn't mean that all of a sudden things change. And you look at the way with Kirk Cousins. He got the massive contract. His whole career changed. His whole career narrative changed. He went from a cute, you know, fourth-round pick that ended up working his way to becoming a starter to you are expected to win right now. You are making X amount of money. You should do X. And with Byron Buxton, he's just not going to be that player. Or I shouldn't say you shouldn't. It's not that he won't be that player. I should say, moreover, that he's not just going to magically become that player because he signed this contract or he will sign this contract. He's going to be who he always is. And Twins fans need to be okay that we are paying him more money to potentially play the same amount of games. Just enjoy the ride. Be happy Byron Buxton is here. Because for all the Twins fans that like to complain about Maurer's contract, they're also the same ones that complain that the poll ads and and the Twins front office doesn't spend enough, and maybe they don't, but they kept a guy in-house that they desperately needed to keep in-house, and that is a win. That is a win. I would much rather re-sign Buxton over Barrios because of the ceiling of Buxton is so, so much higher than the ceiling of Jose Barrios, and Barrios has a good ceiling, but he has a ceiling. Buxton could shatter ceilings. So, again, don't be discouraged just because Byron Buxton's making $15 million a year, and he might ride the injured list of two or three times in a season. That's okay. Enjoy the ride. Appreciate Byron Buxton. He is a generational talent, and if you can put it all together, he can be a generational player. I'm so excited that the Twins get Byron Buxton. He was a guy that in just 61 games had a wins above replacement of four and a half. Most players will take four and a half over a whole season. Buxton, if he would have played even twice the amount of games, if he would have, heck that, uh, heck that. If he would have played 100 games, Byron Buxton would have gotten a lot of MVP votes, a lot more than a lot of players would for playing 100 games. Byron Buxton was that dang impactful for the Twins in his short time with them this season on the field. And if he can just stretch that out even a little bit, he's not going to magically get it because he signed this contract. You're just playing the law of averages and saying that at some point, Buxton's just going to have a season where he's healthy. And if he does, he's not doing it in a Yankees uniform. He's not doing it in an Angels uniform, a Mets uniform, a Braves uniform. He's doing it in a Twins uniform. And that's the biggest thing. Just be glad that he's here. Be glad that he is here. All right, let's wrap this podcast up now, and let's talk about the Minnesota Timberwolves. Man, they are on a roll, are the Timberwolves. They have won, of course, uh, Five out of their last six. They're playing. They're getting ready to play the Indiana Pacers tonight. And Miles Turner, by the way, out for that game. The Wolves have a couple players as well uh, dealing with injuries, including Vanderbilt and such. Um, it's a non-COVID illness for uh, for those guys. It's just a, a bug, I think, that's been going around the locker room. But the Wolves need all the size they can tonight. Miles Turner, of course, out with a, a non-COVID illness as well. So it's going to be interesting to see how that game matches up. Uh, still expect the Timberwolves to win this one. They are at the 500 mark right now. They have put it all together. That win against Miami was huge. We talked about that on the podcast on Thursday. And when you look also with the uh, the Wolves, they get this big win on the road in a double overtime game against Philadelphia. That's a big boy win. That's not playing a team on your home court where you're way more jacked to play them than they are to play you and all that good stuff. This is you went on the road into a hostile environment in Philadelphia. You lost Carl Anthony Towns because he fouled out. And you still find a way to win the game in double overtime. 
That shows guts. It shows guts. And it shows that this team can play. It shows that this team is – they're becoming the new Wolves. And you saw the Wolves uh, – some of the players reference it. Like uh, Anthony Edwards has referenced it. Cat has referenced it. You know, after a bad loss, he said, we played like the old Wolves tonight. And I think that's a great way to describe it. Old Wolves and new Wolves. They're trying to become the new Wolves, trying to break the stigma of the old Wolves. And every once in a while, you're going to see it pop up throughout the season. But I think we're starting to see, and again, I still need to see more, but we're starting to see more often than not that the new Wolves are starting to come up and they're starting to play. Now, that could all change tonight if they have a bad game against Indiana. But for now, that was a big boy win in Philadelphia. And a big reason why hasn't uh, Anthony Edwards has had some good games, obviously. Carl Anthony Towns continued to be a stud. But, but, D'Angelo Russell has been playing really well. He's been balling this season, and everything is starting to come together for, for the Wolves. Not only has D'Angelo Russell been a good point scorer this season, but he has been playing well on the defensive side of the ball. He's been getting key turnovers. He's been in passing lanes. He got a big, uh, he got a big turnover in overtime that helped the or helped the Wolves in the double overtime, I should say, that helped them get ahead with the Tehran Prince bucket to put him up. And that was because of a steal. Uh, it was either from Vanderbilt or it was from D'Angelo Russell. But again, it's just the point of this Wolves team is making plays. D'Angelo Russell has been making a lot of defensive plays, as well as being uh, a distributor on the offensive side of the floor. He also hit a big-time three in that first overtime period as well. I, I mean, I don't know what more you want me to say. The, the Wolves are playmaking. They're the new Wolves. And that is a game in Philadelphia that the old Wolves lose 100 times out of 100. And the new Wolves found a way to win, and they did. And it's been fun to see. They're beating teams in the Eastern Conference that are, they're not top tier, but they certainly are contenders in Philadelphia and in Miami. And it's, the Minnesota Timberwolves have went, this is just wild to me. If you look at the NBA standings, uh, if you look at the Western Conference standings as well, just taking a look at this, the Wolves went from like a week ago or two weeks ago or a week and a half ago, whatever, before they rattled off all these wins, they were sitting on the outside looking in of the playoffs. Now, again, it's still November. They're only a, they're barely a quarter of the way into the season. But the Timberwolves right now are 10-10. and 10. They are tied for the sixth seed with Portland. And a week and a half ago, they were on the outside looking in at like the 11th seed. They've booted their way all the way up to number seven, tied for number six. And now obviously there's a top tier of teams when you look at the Warriors, the Suns, the Jazz, all that kind of stuff. But if you're looking at the way the season's shaking out, and of course the Clippers, obviously they're going to miss Kawhi. But uh, when you look at the Clippers as well, they still have the potential to get into that top four. But as it stands, if the Wolves continue to play well, now again, they got to prove it to me. I'm not going to say they're going to get there, but there somehow is a shot for them to get not only out of the play-in tournament, but also into a top-five seed in the Western Conference. And if you would have told me that from these Wolves this season, I would not have believed you. And that's great. Finch is starting to coach these guys. He's finding the right buttons to push. They're playing together at the right time. And something that the Wolves have never had since the early 2000s, they are a good team that likes to be around each other. And they did not have that in 2017-2018. They certainly have not had it in all the losing seasons. This is a team that likes to be around each other. There's talent, and it's coming together, and it's fun to see. All right, that's going to wrap it up for us here on the Minnesota Sports Podcast for today. Woo! Going to need a, a long—this was a long one, but I'm glad that we were able to talk about all these topics here today. 
it's been fun. This is a, it's exciting. Even though the Vikings had a bad game, there's still a lot of intriguing stuff to talk about with them and just a, a, a bunch of stuff happening in all Minnesota sports. It's really been fun to see uh, with it. And I wish the Vikings would have won so we could have had a perfect Minnesota sports weekend, but we did not. So there you go. Congratulations, Minnesota Vikings. you got to just get our hopes up and, and finish it all off in the end. But, hey, the Twins re-signed Byron Buxton. The Wolves and the Wild continue to be on a roll. We didn't even get to the Wild today. We'll talk about them tomorrow. Plenty of that and more here on the Minnesota Sports Podcast. We'll see you guys then. Thanks for listening to the Minnesota Sports Podcast. You can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Be sure to leave a five-star review and share the podcast on social media to help spread the word.